as speech pathologists, we, we do really get it. We understand the importance of communication and, and social connections. And it's important to learn that how one way of treating or, or working with a, a client isn't necessarily going to be what works for another client in a different state or from a different tribe. If we've got assessment findings that are robust, then we don't have to make any presumptions. And I strongly believe in the value and worth of what we do and the difference we make. Hello, and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature a conversation about an area or topic related to all things speech pathology. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. Hi, my name's Sue McCandlish. I'm a South Australian member of Speech Pathology Australia. And I'd like to welcome Dr. Carol Westby today. And our topic today is personal narratives. Dr. Westby's academic career has included positions at the University of New Mexico, which is a state university, Brigham Young University, and she now has an affiliate position at Wichita State University and also consults with bilingual multicultural services in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Dr. Westby was recently awarded the Kleffner Lifetime Clinical Award uh, from ASHA Foundation uh, in 2020. The award recognises individuals' outstanding contributions to communication sciences and disorders. I know I'm personally very grateful for the contribution Dr. Westby has made to speech pathology over a long career. And I came across your work in the 1980s um, when you'd published numerous papers and chapters on this topic. And I had, of course, a very good fortune of doing a master's degree under you uh, at the University of New Mexico. I know that you synthesise uh, work from numerous fields uh, on the topic of oral narrative and then applied it to speech pathology. So I'm interested in going back to this time and hearing how you became interested in this area. Thank you, Sue. And I am so delighted to be able to participate both in this podcast and next month in being able to do a webinar for you with the focus on narrative. I've been around for quite some time, and so I've watched the field change. In the early 1970s, when I began my clinical work, the focus in speech and language pathology was initially on syntactic structures. Then we moved into semantic functions. By the end of the 70s, we were beginning to talk about pragmatics and two extremely important publications came out with respect to narrative. The first one in 1978 was Arthur Appleby's dissertation, A Child's Sense of Story. And he looked at how young children told fictional stories with the idea of what were the cognitive kinds of skills they needed to be able to do this. The next year, in 1979, Stein and Glenn's article came out on a story grammar structure for fictional narratives. Well, I found those so fascinating. Uh, and to understand children's stories, I took a children's literature class. And then with other faculty at the university, we began to look at how children who had reading problems told fictional stories. And quite a few people in the field of speech language pathology began to do that in the 
the early 80s and consistently the work was showing that children who had difficulty telling and comprehending coherent fictional stories by kindergarten had long-term academic difficulties all the way through middle school. And so from that then I continued to pursue the fictional narratives and how to help children develop the skill in comprehending and understanding fictional narratives. So that's how that all got started. Uh huh. Uh, it's uh, certainly your work in fictional narrative has you know uh, been so instrumental in in helping me work with kids, and I really appreciated that book that you wrote with Natalie Hedberg, the analyzing and story storytelling skills. Um, and then, of course, you moved into the area of um, narratives across culture. And now that you're uh, into personal narrative, so I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit more about what is personal narrative and perhaps what drew you into that area. Personal narratives in some ways was on the back burner for me in terms of intervention with children. I had been interested in in, in it with respect to cultural variations. And Alyssa McKay back in the mid-1980s began looking at that. So I followed her work and I was very intrigued by seeing the way sometimes the content and structure varied. So I was quite familiar with that work. The first decade of the 21st century, we began to see people exploring personal narratives more in terms of how it related to mental health and the development of self-identity. So again, I was aware of that, but again, I was thinking that's not that much tied into what I'm trying to do as a speech language pathologist with children who have communication problems and I'm trying to get them performing better academically. But then there were a couple events that made me realize how important personal narratives were. Um, we know that personal narratives are important in conversation. And I don't know why I didn't think about this before. I'm always so delighted, Sue, when you and I have a chance to, to talk with each other. And when we start the conversations, we don't share a fictional narrative. You say, Carol, what are you doing? And I'm telling you what I'm up to or where I've traveled. And I'm asking you, what are the kids into now? What's happening? We're sharing personal narratives. You can't carry on a conversation if you can't do a personal narrative. And I don't know why it took me so long to realize how critical that was. So that was one piece. And then a couple things happened. I was teaching a class in child language disorders, um, about 60 people in the class, and most of them young women, but in the front row was a middle-aged male. So I was sure he had ended up in the wrong class, so I approached him and said, this is a class in language disorders. Is this where you're supposed to be? And he says, yeah, language disorders. He said, you know, I'm a retired policeman. Uh, after 25 years, we can retire with full pay. Those 25 years, I always worked juvenile. And you know what I figured out? Almost all those juveniles that ended up before the judge had language problems. They'd get in front of the judge and they could not tell a coherent story. And 
I think they ended up with harsher, harsher um, um, problems and longer incarceration than they deserve because the judge didn't understand what had happened. So he said, for my second career, I'm going to become a speech-language pathologist and assess the kids. The last I knew, he was working for the corrections department for the state of Oklahoma doing diagnostic evals on juveniles. So he accomplished what he wanted. But that then also really got me thinking how critical this is. And certainly in Australia, Pamela Snow has always been talking about the language issues that incarcerated people had. And I had always thought of that in terms of, yes, reduced vocabulary and syntax, but hadn't appreciated how critical it was that they be able to tell the judge a coherent story. Um, so that was one aspect. Another aspect, right around the same time, and I was up at, at Brigham Young, and my colleague, Barbara Collada, had been working with uh, a youngster, and Dre had been a perfectly, typically developing child until he was around four and a half. And then over a couple days' time, he began to lose his language. Uh, he... Um, lost all expressive and receptive language. He became uh, a total aphasic. And he was diagnosed with Landau-Kleffner syndrome, which is a seizure disorder that affects the language areas of the brain. Um, by the time I was at BYU, Dre had recovered quite a bit of his language. He's now in his late teens and he's still, he's a youngster that has a language impairment, but by the time I was seeing him, the basic language skills had come in, but he was 10 at the time and he began talking about, he was really depressed. And what's wrong with me? He was in general education classes, but needing support and other kids can do this and I can't do this and why do I have to come and see you and and they keep taking me to Los Angeles and as Barbara and I worked with him we realized he didn't understand what had happened to him no one had explained it and we approached his parents and we said you know Dre needs to know his story he needs to know what happened why all of these things have been going on. He needs to see how far he has come. And so with the parents, we worked at helping teach Dre his story, both from the past, the present, and then also beginning to help him also visualize his future. So developing that storyline. So those were particular touchstones that made me realize how critical the personal narratives were. Hmm. So it sort of seems that with language-impaired individuals, um, uh, stories can be a, a jigsaw, if you like, and until they perhaps have the recall and the language to put that jigsaw together, they're not necessarily getting the meaning of what's actually happened to them. Oh, very important, Sue, that you're bringing it up. They don't make the connections of what's happening in their life. And then certainly when we look at their life story, one of the things we're analyzing 
Is there a temporal sequence? Do they understand cause-effect relationships? And that's been shown in adults that have had trauma. They don't see cause-effect relationships. And if you don't understand that, you don't know how to really function well in your life. And it's kind of life just happens to you. You don't know and can't understand what's going on. So ex- extremely important. I, I actually think that's the same for children as well. Yes. Um, as I reflect on you know the language-impaired children that I work with, I see that <laughs> that life is a little bit of a jigsaw puzzle for them. Um, one of the underpinnings of personal narrative is that notion of autobiographical autobiographical memory, uh, which I uh, find a really interesting concept. Can you explain what that is and why that's important for personal narrative? Well, if you think about it, how can you tell your personal story if you can't remember your experience? You first have to draw up your past memories. And autobiographical memories are our memories for the times and places and emotions for those events. The emotions are really, really important because they help solidify that memory. If there's not a strong emotion attached to it, it kind of disappears and you can't easily retrieve it. And think about that with so many youngsters you have. Any of the youngsters on the autism spectrum are not good at recognizing emotions, feeling emotions. Many children, even with just specific language impairment, have real deficits in emotional vocabulary. Mm. So it's going to... And trauma kids, Yes, trauma, yeah. Uh, And pretty much any condition that affects your communication skills will result in reduced autobiographical memory. Now, autobiographical memory is also interesting because there are two components to it. There's the semantic or factual piece, facts that you know about something. And then there's the episodic aspect. And that's the sense of being back there in the past. That's where you have to have a sense of the order and the emotions that occurred in that experience. And and the two need to be united. Um, The example I've shared with you before, and again, I was so fortunate a number of years ago to spend a September and October out in Adelaide working with you on a number of things. And the one day you said, we're going to go to the Royal Show. Well, I didn't know what that was. And then you kind of explained it's like the New Mexico State Fair. Oh, that's good. I love love the State Fair. This is going to be good. Um, And so I have two very strong autobiographical memories about that. Some semantic memories that would be related to that. The royal show takes place in your spring. It's my fall, but your spring. And it was either September or October. I don't know which of those. And it's in Adelaide. uh, And there are animals there. That's kind of just factual information. Now, a new fact you gave me was that there were such a thing as show bags. Never heard of show bags. And your kids. So now what's starting to happen? That was just some factual memories. Nothing very important. 
But now we're getting into my episodic memories for that. Your kids were so excited to go to the royal show. They had some kind of brochure that showed all the different kinds of show bags you could get and what the prices were. They are studying that paper over. You had told them, here's how much money you have. You're not getting any more. So they were adding up, figuring, okay, what could they get? How much could they get? So that, oh, I remember them sitting around the table doing that. And then I remember walking onto the fairgrounds. And you know me, I've loved ducks. And I had mocha duck when you were out here studying. And when I was in Australia, I had sprint the runner duck. We get on to the show, um, the, the rural show grounds, and there is a man with three runner ducks <laughs> dressed in coats and hats. I was so excited. It's like, just let me follow these ducks around. So very strong memory. And then we go into this big building with all the show bags. So your kids are thrilled. And then you buy me a show bag with Australian chocolates, all <laughs> kinds of Tim Tams and Cadbury. And see, when I'm talking about that, I see the building, I see the bag, I can almost taste the Tim Tams. That's what an autobiographical memory is. It's a very rich memory that you're feeling that you're almost back there at that time. Mm. So it really... Um yeah, it gives you part of an important piece of puzzle to your life or to that particular period of your life and, and helps you make sense of it and, and enjoy it again too when it was a pleasant experience. Yeah. Um, I'm also interested when we talk about autobiographical memory, so it really informs how we can piece together personal narrative. But it, I've read it also can inform future thinking as well. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yes. Um, we sometimes talk about autobiographical memory as mental time travel. I've also always been a science fiction junkie and have watched every episode of all the Star Treks. So I was always intrigued also with time travel. Uh, so now I realize, okay, I can do mental time travel. When yeah, I'm sharing that memory of the royal show in Australia. That's time travel to the past. It turns out the better able you are to time travel to the past, the better you can visualize that experience, the better able you are to time travel to the future and see the future. That then helps me with self-regulation. Um, what's happened in the past? Um, well, and here's, here's a good example of this, a youngster that didn't have good autobiographical memory. And then it affected his ability to plan what he was going to do. Uh, he was a neighbor of ours quite a number of years ago. And this was when we had a motorcycle stuntman named Evil Knievel, uh, who was jumping everything he could jump, cars and trucks and rivers and canyons. So this kid, he's, a, he's a, a, about eight, and we're in a townhouse, two-story. And 
the edge of the townhouse backs the hill. He manages to get his bike up the hill and on the roof of the townhouse. He is now announced he's evil Knievel and he rides off, breaks an arm. So he gets him patched up, you know, broken arm. And it's a number of months later. Doesn't he do the exact same thing? Okay, breaks a bone again. This time when the parents take him to the hospital, the hospital reports them to protection and advocacy because they're afraid the parents are abusing the child. And I said, no, what was going on? A typical child is he would begin getting his bike on the roof, would remember what happened the last time. This was not good. It hurt. Mom and dad were really mad at me. I couldn't use my arm and it hurt a lot. And when that memory got triggered, they then would realize, oh, not a good thing to do. What else could I do? Now, with that, then comes um, the ability to do a counterfactual thinking. Uh, and preschool kids don't do this. But by elementary school, kids should be able to realize, don't do that again. Here's what happened the last time. Don't do it. You will get in big trouble. I see teenagers who don't know that. That's why some of them, I had one student, I miss, I don't know how I ended up in jail again. You did the same thing. <laughs> uh, so you have to remember what happened, and you can either not do it, but there are times you say, I still want to accomplish something. So not doing that if I get on the roof then I could break an arm that uh, so I won't get on the roof that we call subtractive okay don't do something but what is more important is additive and this is again where we find particularly kids with any kind of language impairment are extremely delayed in figuring out what else they could do they'll often finally get don't do it but so like the youngster that that wanted to jump on his bike, join the local BMX group and they've got a nice track that has bumps in it and it's safe and you'll have a helmet and you'll get to do that. That would be an additive. I still want to do it. Can you envision yourself then where you could do this safely? And so autobiographical memory is really critical in self-regulation. Certainly uh, speech pathologists are very interested too in executive function. You can't have executive function if you don't have good autobiographical memory. So yeah, the underpinnings in a personal narrative really are important in making a sense of our own stories and of our own lives, but also helping us plan for the future and, you know, making, I guess, a safer path forward for us. And, and that is critical, as you said, with language-impaired children or population, that those areas, um, if they're depressed or down, um, makes for their lives a much more challenged space. So, yeah, that's, a, that's interesting. It's an, ex, it's an exciting area. I, I work, my uh, client load is uh, of four- to seven-year-old children. And certainly they struggle with personal narrative. What tips can you give me uh, around helping these kids with personal narratives? Is there a particular thing that is shown to be really helpful? Yeah. Well, realize that 
as soon as the youngster lets you know she's remembering something, you can begin to engage her in what we call elaborative reminiscing. That can be as early as 18 months. So let's say earlier in the day, the youngster's gotten her fingers caught in the, the door and it really hurt and you put a Band-Aid on. And later she goes up and kind of taps on the door, uh, door, door, and her hand, and you realize she's remembering. And you then reminisce and say, yes, you got your fingers caught in the door. It hurt. You cried. So you describe what happened. You let her know the feeling that she had. Again, really critical to attach the feeling to that event. So all through preschooler, uh, and it turns out the children who have had parents who have done more of this elaborative reminiscing by kindergartner are better not only at personal stories, but it also turns out they're also better in fictional stories. If they've had more experience with the reminiscing of their personal life experiences, they can do better in comprehending and reproducing fictional stories. So we could use photographs, for examples, of of the situations that we do with therapy or um, if we're able to get photographs of something that's happened at home. And I think that's a really critical piece, the marrying of the emotion with the event. And it's certainly something that I've not particularly done as a, as a real emphasis in my narrative therapy previously. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it as much until I got into the personal narrative. And as you said, uh, using pictures, another thing that's very important when you initially start doing this um, with young kids, don't try to reminisce with something that you have not experienced with oh, them. okay, okay. Uh, because right. you will trigger false memories. Little kids want to please you. Ah. So mm -hmm. you'll ask for something and they'll give you something back. So with our staff, I always say, have fun activities. Again, it's been so much harder with COVID, but uh, do really some enjoyable activities as, as part of the language activities, arts and crafts, science activities, um, something outside that has been enjoyable and fun. And so... In your next session, the other thing I find staff would often, every session would be totally different. And I said, no, I want a connection among them because you do an activity in this session, then in the next session, reminisce about what you did. It could even just be reminisce about the story. You really like that story we had. Um, you really like Koala Lou and, uh, you know, you were worried about her and you reminisce and you don't necessarily have the book right in front of you at that point, but you're getting kids to reminisce about that experience. They give you a little and then what you're doing is you're structuring, you're modeling a sentence that might be a little bit higher level. You're also putting stuff in a temporal sequence particularly, again, the cause effect and the emotions. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so even though it's, you know, kids are much older before they can tell a 
full, coherent personal narrative by themselves. The foundations for that are occurring in preschool. Mm-hmm. And certainly with dramatic play or sociodramatic play, that would be another space um, that we could connect, make those connections with. Right. The last time we were here, what did we play the last time you were with me? What were we playing? Yeah. Any time that you can reminisce and bring up, because then what you're helping that child do is develop that ability to envision, to visualize the past experience. And that's what's so critical. That's why early on, indeed, often with the kids we see, we need to support that with pictures, even video. I'll tell my staff, uh, turn on your phone, take a video of the experience. Otherwise, you know, you've seen the kid on Tuesday and it's Thursday and you say, okay, remember what we did on Tuesday? No. (laughs) And (laughs) we were working on rockets. We were? Yeah. (laughs) So we find, yeah, we need to have the photos. We need to often have some little videos initially to help trigger because the kids we see are so bad at the visualizing. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm just wondering, are there any particular resources that you might direct us in and to to help us read a little bit more about that? Uh, That one, again, you know, I have two articles that I've written, one on personal narratives and the recent one on autobiographical memory. Uh, one of my colleagues, Tiffany Hutchinson, Hutchins and her doc student are working on a book that will be on how to promote autobiographical memory. Um, so I'll let you know when that comes out. I'm not sure how far along, but yeah, I've been kind of doing some help with them on that. It's an area, there's a tremendous amount in the research literature, not as much in our literature. There's also more about it coming out in Europe because they've been uh, particularly addressing the problems that uh, refugee children have with autobiographical memory and their mental health. So they've done a lot of training of lay people in how to help children tell their personal stories. Okay, so maybe um, we might be able to get some of your articles uploaded um, and uh, people can access them. So that I know both of the, the articles you're talking about, they are really informative and really clear. So I want to thank you very much for your time today, uh, Dr. Westby. As always, you're a wealth of knowledge and I always get such delight in in talking with you and I'm so grateful for uh, the way you have made things so easy for us to understand uh, at the clinical level. So thank you uh, for sharing your, your knowledge with us today. And thank you so much, Sue. I so appreciated you and the connections that you've made possible for me with others in Australia. So thank you, too. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.